Our scripture reading this morning is Colossians 3, 1 through 14. It's Colossians 3, 1 through 14. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, TK, for reading that passage for us so beautifully. Um, there is a lot going on in this passage, lots of instruction, and so I have a homework assignment for you. Uh, and the homework assignment that I have is I want to encourage you to read these 14 verses every day this week. Uh, just spend some time uh, with them. It, there's there's, there's a, a beautiful outcome of spending time memorizing Scripture, rehearsing Scripture, going back through it again and again. And so I want to encourage you to do that. Part of the reason I want to encourage that uh, is because in this sermon, my aim is to really zero in on half of a verse. So we have 14 verses here, and I'm zeroing in on just the first part of verse 8. So the Bible is knowingly and squarely written for us. It's written for people. It's not like when we read the Bible, we're reading some ancient rune that was written for some civilization or species that's from another galaxy or something like that. We're reading God's word given to us that we might know him and that we might know what it looks like for us to live in a relationship with him. We're in the intended audience and so it's meant to resonate with us as the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom and so as we zero in on just half of a verse, that's what I want us to look into is, is I want us to find ourselves in this passage. 
The part of the verse that I want to focus on is this, verse 8, but now you must put away them all, anger, wrath, and malice. Anger, wrath, and malice. That's what we're going to talk about. Are you an angry person? Would you know it if you were an angry person? Uh, a number of years ago, I was seeing a counselor, and he turned me on to the Enneagram. He wanted to know what I was on the Enneagram. Maybe you've heard of this. It's a kind of a, a, an ancient personality descriptor type of thing that helps you know a little bit about what makes you tick and what makes other people tick and that sort of thing. Anyway, I discovered... As I, as I began to do a little looking into it, that I am a nine on the Enneagram. The nine is the peacemaker, or if you will, the saint. <laughs> it's the good one. And as I was reading about my type, you guys are going to love this. Um, here's, here's, what, here's what it says about me. You're easygoing and emotionally stable. That's good. You're open, trusting, patient with others. You're good-natured, here's my favorite part, and refreshingly unpretentious. I mean, you guys lucked out. You have a pastor who is refreshingly unpretentious, guys. These words, as I read them, I was like, I like the Enneagram. This is like a warm blanket. I'm just going to keep on reading. I'm going to take my easygoing, emotionally stable, refreshingly unpretentious self and read on. And so then I read on. Enneagram nines can be weighed down by the dominating core emotion of anger. You can feel angry. And anger if you do not express your needs. In fear of loss and separation, it says, the negativity you face can become so overwhelming and unbearable that you have a rageful meltdown as it builds up. What? I never thought of myself as an angry person. But that's what nines do. We famously are out of touch with our anger. I can see it better now. This is 10 years ago when I first started looking. I can see it better now. One of the things I can also see is I can't see it clearly. I know that about myself. But I can see it better now. But one of the things that I see is that I can be very prone to denying that there's anger within me. What does it look like in you? What does anger look like in you? Whether it pours out of you the minute it appears or it's something that you just shove right on down there and just you put that lid on top of it and every once in a while it erupts, but it only erupts like every six to nine months or even two to three years. Everybody has it though, right? Everybody's angry. Everybody's got things to be angry about. Everybody gets sideways with people. Everybody gets frustrated with the world. Everybody gets frustrated with themselves. And Paul says, put it away. Put away anger, wrath, and malice. And he does so by opening that verse saying, but now, but now. What is he saying there? 
He says, now you must put them all away. He's marking something. He's saying you're different. Something has changed in you. You used to be one way. There was what used to be, and now there is what's now, what's true now. What marks the change? Well, that's what the book of Colossians has been all about, right? Paul has been telling this church, when you entered into a relationship with Jesus, you were transformed. Your sin was taken away. The righteousness of Christ was put upon you. You're holy in the sight of God. You're a community that's bound together. He's saying to the believers in Colossae and by extension to the church everywhere that we used to be ruled by earthly desires, ruled by them. I mean, the verse prior to this says, in these you once walked when you were living in them. What's he saying? He's saying to the church, listen, don't pretend that your life was just fine before Jesus because it wasn't. No believer should pretend this way. Our lives were filled with temptation, temptations that brought trouble. And this is part of every believer's story. And it's a real part. It's a true part of the story. We should not pretend otherwise. See, this is one of the beauties of the gospel. The gospel does not erase your past as though it never happened. Instead, the gospel deals with your past as though it did happen. And so it's an invitation for us to remember and to know that our past struggles and our failures have shaped us. They were real. However, Paul says in verses 1 to 3 of this chapter, if you have been raised with Christ, you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And he's saying to the church, that's also real. That's also true. Believers shouldn't pretend otherwise. We shouldn't pretend that we're just out here kind of floating on our own. And if we need a little bit of help, we can ask God, but we're generally just kind of doing this, figuring this out as we go. No. Our sin has been taken away. We're robed in the righteousness of Christ. The Spirit of God dwells inside of us. That's real. If our past failures and struggles have shaped our lives in real ways, how much more should the one who took those failures and struggles to the cross shape our future? To live as though nothing has changed for the Christian is to live a lie. Because this is the case, Paul says, you must get rid of the old ways. Why? Not to gain the righteousness of Christ. We already have that. We get rid of them because they don't fit anymore. They don't make sense to the life we're called to live. Now, one of the beautiful truths of the gospel is we don't save ourselves. It's not on you to make yourself holy. It's not on you to save yourself. We can't make ourselves presentable to God. We can't do this by our own merit. We're robed in the righteousness of Christ. If we're going to stand before God and live, that's how we have to stand. And the gospel tells us, look, Christ took your sin upon himself on the cross. He clothed us in his righteousness. When we stand before the Lord, we read in Colossians chapter 1, we stand before the Lord holy and blameless in his sight 
and above reproach before him because of the death of Christ on our behalf. And so when we look at a call like this to put away sin, to put away sinful behavior, it is not a call to make ourselves worthy of salvation. It's never that. It's never a put away this sin in order to have a shot at being redeemed. Instead, it is a call to live honestly before God, knowing that he means to change us. When we enter into a relationship with him, he means to change us. And putting away sin is the work of that. It's the work of cooperating. It's the work of submitting to the Lord's will. This expression Paul uses, put away, is similar to the concept of shedding a garment, of taking something off. And what Paul is saying is he's saying, just deal mercilessly with your sin. Those old habits that are caustic, that are broken, that are painful, deal mercilessly with them. Don't coddle them as though they can fill you up in any way. Regard them instead as unwelcome intruders who mean you harm. They're not your friends. Because we are to know that if we let them just sort of take up residence in our hearts, they're going to run the show. They're going to call the shots. And we go through, I mean, you, I'm sure if you're, 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 I'm sure we're similar enough that you, like me, go through seasons where we become unguarded with the unhealthiest parts of ourselves and it kind of takes over, you know? And for some of us, it might be we just become angry for it, angrier than normal for a season, or we withdraw more than we're normally withdrawn for a season, or whatever it is, that if we're not paying attention, if we're not taking off these things, they can take up residence and call the shots. Scripture says, be thoughtful about your sin. Be thoughtful about it. It's easy to drift and continue in sins that we don't ever seek to name. For like, there's just things about me that are unlikable, but I don't really know what they are. Ah, when you start to name them, there's power in that, in giving identity and light to things that are otherwise nameless and hidden in shadow. And our verses today do just that. They name things. It names some of the most relationally caustic problems out there, anger, wrath, and malice. In the previous verses in this chapter, they call for believers to flee sins of the flesh, carnal desires, idolatrous coveting. But this verse aims at sins that are more social, that are destructive ways of relating to people, that have to do with temper. And Paul doesn't just say fix your relationships. He says name things. Name things about those relationships that are broken. And he names anger, wrath, and malice. These three things hold together in a pretty interesting way. Because they're not just synonyms. They're not the same thing. But they actually work together in a unique way. What is anger? Now, before I define this, I want to acknowledge there is such a thing as righteous anger. The kind of anger that boils up inside of you, uh, an anger at evil, an anger at injustice. I, I know that. That's clearly not what Paul's talking about here. So let's talk about what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the kind of anger that smolders in your heart. It's a smoldering hatred and contempt. It's something that you can have and few people can see. 
that burns inside of you. But fire isn't content to just smolder forever, right? It wants to burn. And we're fools if we doubt it. Proverbs 6.27 asks, Can a man scoop embers into his lap without getting burned? Fire wants to burn. Anger is that. It's a smoldering hatred and contempt. So what is wrath then? Wrath is anger let loose. Wrath is that anger on display. Anger we keep in, wrath we let out. Wrath is the punch in the nose. Wrath is the verbal assault. Wrath is the passive-aggressive email meant to tear down signed with love. Wrath is anger expressed destructively. It's the anger that pours out. It's the moments you wish you could take back. For some, it's like a volcanic eruption. It just happens. And everybody around you knows, well, they're like this. It just kind of happens. And you don't always see it coming. And then it's over fast, but it's there. For others, it's, it's like a series of small incisions. It's death by a thousand cuts. But that's what wrath is. It's anger let loose. So what's malice? How does malice fit into this? Malice is the intent. Malice is the intent to harm. The intent to harm a body or a reputation. So they work together like this. Anger is the powder keg. Wrath is the explosion. Malice lights the fuse. That's what malice is. It often manifests itself through our speech, which is why the rest of this verse deals with our words as wrath, which flows from anger and is fueled by malice. When we're provoked, those provocations seldom are the cause for our anger. Usually what's happening is they're just exposing anger that's already inside of us and is just looking for a target. And malice is that part of us that says, I'm going to make you the target and you are going to pay. So much of putting sin aside involves dealing honestly with our sin, owning them rather than blaming other people for them. Because the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life is a real thing, we have to examine our real ways of living and our real ways of relating, and we have to name them and see if they belong in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ who has the Spirit of the Lord in us. And if they don't, Paul says, get rid of them. They don't fit. They don't belong. Anger, wrath, malice, that unholy triad can't help you. You weren't made to wear them well. So Paul says, put these things away. There's, a, there's a, um, an assumption that Paul is making in this chapter, in the verses that we read, about, that are about sins that we should avoid and things we should seek to put off. And it's an interesting assumption. I think it's something that we can forget uh, or, or just not even recognize as something that is significant, but it's very significant. And it's this. These words that Paul gives us about sin, 
avoid these things, put these things off. Because they can do damage relationally. Underneath that is a presumption that we're meant to live in the kinds of relationships with each other where we're close enough to hurt each other. We're meant to be that close. We're meant to be close enough that I can wound you and you can wound me. If you have a life, if you have a world where you have no relationships where anybody is close enough to hurt you, I would lay money on the fact that it's because somebody hurt you. And somewhere along the way you said, that's never going to happen to me again. Since we started talking about anger, maybe somebody has come to mind for you. Somebody that you think, uh, you know, I don't know if, I'm going to generally apply what I'm hearing, but not specifically. Somebody that you're angry with, someone who maybe you know is angry with you. If you hold on to that anger, it will come out somehow. It may erupt. It may come out through a very tactical takedown of somebody's reputation. Or it may come out as a kind of a repelling magnetic force that just pushes you away so that you never get close to anybody ever again. It'll come out in some way. So how can you set it aside? Maybe it's just a small thing. Maybe it's a full-blown feud. Either way, there are ways that we can set our anger, wrath, and malice aside. Now, I know, again, another disclaimer. I know that there are some relationships where there's so much abuse and destruction done by somebody that it's not a safe relationship to pursue reconciliation with. Let's, let's, let's accept that as a category and set it aside and say, let's talk about those other ones where, where it's not in that category. And while we're at it, let me ask you if you've put anybody in that category that maybe doesn't belong, doesn't deserve to be in that category and might be worthy of pursuing some kind of forgiveness and reconciliation. What can you do about it? You can confess your part. You can repent of what you have to repent of. What if instead of letting your anger out through wrath and malice, you let it out through confession and repentance and humility? Even if you're only partially to blame, even if you're only 2% to blame. The reason I bring that up is to ask the question, what would happen if you did? Maybe nothing. But in most cases, here's what I'd bet. You would be drawn closer to that person, not driven further away. And likely they would be drawn closer to you and not further away. And it doesn't mean you're in the process of making a new best friend, necessarily. But your words would aid reconciliation and not destruction. You're putting off (coughs) malice. And so what are you putting on? If malice is the intent to harm and destroy, what are you putting on? The intent to heal and honor. If that were to happen, if reconciliation were to happen, You might feel like it's a miracle. And what I would want to say is, it wouldn't be a miracle. It would be the way of love. It would be the way love works. Reconciliation. Love heals. If we find in scripture a verse like this that tells us to put off attitudes and actions that hurt relationships, you have to recognize that implicit 
is a call to be in relationships where you're close enough to actually <coughs> experience this kind of harm. Because the concept is really unavoidable, right? As Christians, we're called to live in the kinds of relationships where we're close enough to hurt each other. And all the warnings in scripture against destroying each other relationally are built on this basic truth that you're made for these kinds of relationships. It's not good for a man to be alone. It's in the second chapter of scripture. It's one of the first things we learn about people is it's not good for us to be alone. When God made Eve, he wasn't just making for Adam a spouse. He was making for Adam community. He was giving Adam others. It's not good for him to be alone. We were meant to live closely enough that we have the capacity to do real damage to those that we're supposed to love well. And this means that we enter into relationships with people even though we see their faults, even though we know their quirks, even though we know their failures. We enter into those relationships on purpose, knowing that we may well become the object of their wrath and malice one day just as they may become the object of our wrath and malice one day. But the glorious gospel truth of the book of Colossians is that Christ is stronger than all of that, that he redeems that, that he heals that. He's greater than our sin. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more, right? His grace is greater than our failures. His love prevails over our relational poverty. And so to put aside anger, wrath, and malice, we have to acknowledge not only their power, but we also, also have to acknowledge their presence in our lives. We have to be willing to name them. But we do this remembering that scripture is written for us. It's written knowingly and squarely for people. And it tells us, in effect, look, you're prone to this. You're prone to get angry. And it's not going to take you anywhere good. But there is grace enough in Christ to not let it rule you. Christ has changed you, and he's changed you for real. So put your anger and all of its destructive outlets aside. May the Lord work that in us. May we echo David's prayer, search me, O God, and know me. Look inside my anxious heart and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ prevail in us because this is what he says he will do. Amen? Let me pray. Father, I thank you for places in your word where we're given a story with people and situations, the woman at the well, the woman with the issue of blood, the rich young ruler, these stories that have conversational exchanges in them, that have relational depth that have these, these, these things where we can picture them. Lord, we also thank you for passages of scripture like this that give us a list of things to consider as your followers for how to live, what to do, what not to do, what to put on, what to take off. Thank you for not speaking in sweeping generalities, but for addressing us in our tendency toward sensual sin and relational sin and combative sin. Lord, help us to trust you as you lead us in approaching our relationships with humility and naming the sin within us and seeking to put it off because of 
the mercy and the grace that you have extended, not in order to earn it, but as a way of responding to what we've already been given. Thank you that the communion table that we come to is this reminder to us of this place that you have given us in your company, that you have given us a place at your table, that you have given us a seat with you in the intimate setting of sharing a meal. And you've told us that this is where we belong forever, when our faith is in you. And so, Lord, we, we delight in that, we take comfort in that, and we thank you for your mercy and your grace. Help us to see where we're angry. Help us to see where that anger comes out in wrath. Help us to see the malice that is the architect behind the expression of our anger and wrath. And we just thank you for the gospel being strong enough to prevail over all these things. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.